Alrighty. If you want to head back to your seats, we are going to look at Mark 6. If you want to head back to your seats, we're going to look at Mark 6, verses 14 to 30. Mark 6, verses 14 to 30. As we continue our time in in Mark's gospel, slowly moving our way through Mark's gospel, we now turn to Mark 6, verses 14 to 30. And when you turn there, you can just go ahead and stand. I shouldn't have had you sit down, actually. Uh, We'll read, we're looking at Mark 6, verses 14 to 30 in particular, but I'll I'll start in verse 7 and read on through, and I think you'll see why here in just a few moments. We're going to read Mark 6, verse 7, starting in verse 7, on through verse 30. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts. But to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus 
and told him all that they had done and taught. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ our Lord we ask. Amen. You can be seated. On my preparations this past week, I came across some of the stories of the, uh, the genocide of Christians by the Islamic State, which started, it seems, in 2014, particularly in Iraq and in Baghdad there. It was not that long ago that the world was introduced to ISIS. You might even remember the, some of the gruesome tales on the news that year as Christians were slain in astounding numbers. So Andrew White, who was the, uh, the vicar of St. George's Anglican Church there in Baghdad, he's described the scenes in moving and horrific detail. He described people running down the street from ISIS soldiers who were chasing them with swords. On the verge of tears, he told of a, a five-year-old boy named Andrew, a boy, a little boy from his, his parish, who was named after him, actually, being cut in half with a sword for identifying with the name of Jesus. He told of ISIS capturing four young people under the age of 15 and, and commanding them to convert to Islam and, and telling them to declare that they would follow Muhammad. They replied, no, we, we love Jesus. We have always loved Jesus. We have always followed Jesus. The ISIS men told them, say the words to Muhammad or we will kill you. And the young people responded, no, we cannot. And the ISIS men cut their heads off. These Christians were killed for being Christians. They were beheaded for naming the name of Jesus. Now this is a graphic parable of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself told us in Mark 8:34 that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We like to dress that up and soften it. But the cross is an instrument of execution and death. And for some, that may mean that they will literally be slain for the sake of following Jesus. But for all of us, it means we must be spiritually slain for the sake of following Jesus. And that's what our passage this morning is all about. As one theologian puts it, it's a passage about discipleship and death, mission and martyrdom. And we see that in this passage here, is, is, uh, th this passage is what we've been calling, it's one of Mark's sandwiches, one of Mark's sandwiches. If you've been with us from the beginning of our time in Mark's gospel, you might remember us at some points talking about Mark's sandwiches. And it's a, a literary device that Mark likes to use to make a particular point and to explore certain themes. And here we find one. If you'll notice... Last week, we looked at Mark 6, verses 7 through 13. 
when Jesus sent out his disciples and he commissioned them to to represent him and proclaim him throughout Israel as his disciples. And we made mention that, that we find their return in Mark 6, verse 30. And if our text this morning, verses 14 to 29, were missing from Mark's gospel, and we skipped straight from verse 13 to 30, well, this chapter would read very naturally, wouldn't it? But it so happens, Mark has included this story about John the Baptist as as the meat between two slices of bread, the slices of bread being Christ's disciples being sent out on and returning from their mission. Now, why would he do that? Well, Mark is trying to show us something about what we can expect if we ourselves are to live as Christ's disciples and representatives in the world. We saw last week that that we are a sent people today. And that's what Mark wanted us to see last week. And as Christ's disciples, we are a sent people, sent to represent him and to carry forth his mission in the world. But now Mark also wants us to see in this story about John the Baptist that living as Christ's disciples and representatives may mean and does mean death for us. So I want to call this sermon, Lessons from a Slain Prophet for a Sent People. And what we find here is that as we live lives of discipleship and mission, first, we find a world that often misunderstands Jesus, and we see that in verses 14 to 16. Second, we face those who reject God's authority, and we see that in verses 17 to 30. And third, we follow the path of our crucified Savior. We'll look at verses 21 to 29. First, we find a world that often misunderstands Jesus. Let's begin with verse 14 here. Mark writes that King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Now, it seems that as Christ's disciples were sent out on their mission in Israel, they caused quite a stir. People are, are, are hearing about and talking about Jesus, and it even reached the ears of King Herod. But, but then it, it seems... Now, also, along with this conversation about Jesus, there was also much confusion. Mark goes on to say, some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And so here we find out about what has happened to to Jesus' cousin and forerunner, John the Baptist. John was was a prince of a man, and Jesus actually said that among those born of woman, there has arisen none greater than John the Baptist. But we saw all the way back in Mark 1.14 that John had been arrested. But but here we, we come to learn more about his fate, about how Herod had killed him by cutting off his head. Now Herod, he's he's called a king here, but the term is used rather loosely. Uh, he's, he's a vice regent of sorts, put in place under the emperor Caesar to oversee the domain of Israel. And even there in Israel, his domain was shared. So you see, this Herod, Herod Antipas, was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one in power when Jesus was born. And Herod the Great had ten wives, and among his ten wives, he had four sons, 
And so when his reign came to an end, he actually divided up his domain in Israel into fours, and he gave a fourth to each of his sons. That's why you might have heard Herod called a tetrarch before. Tetra means four, and ark means ruler. He was a ruler of the fourth of the domain of Israel under Caesar. But still, he wielded enormous power there in Israel, enough power to arrest and behead whomever he wanted, for whatever reason he wanted, it seems. And that's what happened to John the Baptist. But then as news of Jesus spread throughout Israel, we find people sharing and espousing their theories regarding Christ's identity. Some say he's, he's just a prophet. Others provide some supernatural explanations, like he's Elijah, or, or he's John the Baptist raised from the dead, and, and Herod adopts this theory. That he's John the Baptist raised from the dead, perhaps because he has something of a guilty conscience regarding John. We don't know. But whatever Herod's reason for his theory, and whatever the, the reasons for the differing theories, all the differing theories throughout Israel regarding Jesus at that time, what we find here is that Jesus was being deeply misunderstood, wasn't he? The people generally did not have an accurate view of his identity even as his fame spread. As Jesus' fame spread throughout Israel, the people still didn't understand who Jesus is or what he came to do. And friends, we still live in a world wherein Jesus is deeply misunderstood. Don't confuse the, the vast fame of Jesus in the world today with true knowledge of him. Of course, Jesus is, is the most famous figure in all of human history. There are very few in the world who haven't heard of him, but, but don't confuse his fame with true knowledge of him. He is still deeply misunderstood. We live in a world where many who have heard the name of Jesus view him as, as nothing more than, than a great teacher, similar to maybe Gandhi or Socrates. We live in a world where in political parties, like to use Jesus as their very own mascot, having a Jesus that conveniently agrees with all of their policies and principles. Some view him as a political revolutionary. Muslims, making up almost two, million, or two billion people of the world, rather, view him as nothing more than a prophet. Some religious groups view him as a very powerful angelic being. There, there's so many differing views, so many differing versions of Jesus out there depending on who you are and what your preference is. If you want a hippie Jesus, you can have that. If you want a gun-toting superhero Jesus, you can have that too. It just depends on what your preference is. There's so much confusion and misunderstanding about Jesus in the world. I remember several years ago, I was in Yellow Springs. I was talking with a, a middle-aged gentleman about Christ and the gospel and and we were there, we were on the sidewalk in the, the main strip there of the village, and, and I didn't get to say too much because he interrupted me pretty early on, and he said, yeah, 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 I, I know all about Christianity. I'm a history teacher. I probably know more about it than you do. And he said, you probably don't know that Christianity as it is today wasn't formed until about the fourth century at the Council of Nicaea. And he said, that's when they came up with the trilogy. And I said, the trilogy, you know, good grief. I thought he was talking about Lord of the Rings. Um, I said, the trilogy? Do, do you mean the, the doctrine of the Trinity? And he said, no, the trilogy. And I realized this man had no idea what he was talking about. And to be frank, that's, that's often what I find when I talk with my non-Christian friends and neighbors about the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
I find that they often have, have deeply misunderstood who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And, and, and sure, absolutely, there are people in the world who, who, who reject Christ and have a good grasp of the truth claims that we biblically make about him. But personally, I can count on one hand the amount of people that I've shared the gospel with who reject Christ and already had a good grasp of who they're rejecting. Far more common are those who deeply misunderstand and thus don't even know who it is they're rejecting. Perhaps there are those of you here today who are not believers in and followers of Jesus Christ. And, and so I just want to put the question to you, do you know who it is you're rejecting? You may think you do, but have you ever read the scriptures? Have you ever read one of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? Have you ever dealt with, with what Jesus himself has said? Have you ever dealt with his own claims about himself? Have you, have you ever wrestled with what his words mean, being the Messiah and the Son of God who came to ransom sinners from death and hell? Have you ever considered him as God's salvation for a fallen world? Friend, I would exhort you, if you have not, to seek and un to consider, to understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. Because if he is who he said he is, and you reject him, whether you misunderstand him or not, if he is who he said he is and you reject him, eternal damnation awaits you. And maybe you say, well, I don't believe that. So I'm not here to talk about what you believe. I'm, I'm here to talk to you about what's true. And if it's possibly true that eternal life or eternal damnation depends on Jesus and your response to him, shouldn't you at least be sure of who it is you're rejecting? Shouldn't you at least consider him and try to, to clearly understand him? And for those of us who are Christians here this morning, See here that this is, this is why an essential part of our discipleship and mission is to make Jesus known. Look at verse 14 there. King Herod had heard of it because Jesus' name had become known. Well, why was his name becoming known? It's because that's what his disciples were doing. They were going throughout Israel and declaring the name of Jesus. And that's an essential aspect of our vocation and mission as disciples of Jesus Christ. We're called to make Jesus known. And with that, you can't assume that people already know. You can't assume that your children will know, that your neighbors will know, that your coworkers will know, that your parents will know. You can't assume that just because Jesus, are, just because people are familiar with the name of Jesus, rather, that they have true knowledge of him. And D.A. Carson once said that to assume the gospel in one generation is to lose it in the next. You know, if we assume the gospel and we assume that those around us already have a good grasp of it and who Jesus is, those around us and those to come will likely be ignorant of it. So we must make Jesus known. Of course, as we do, some, perhaps most, will reject him. Those who misunderstand him, even those who do understand him, will sometimes reject him. And that's what we'll look at next as we see verses 17 to 20. See that as we live lives of discipleship and mission, we will also face those who reject God's authority. We face those who reject God's authority. And we find this as we see why it is that Herod arrested John in the first place. Verse 17 tells us that, that Herod had arrested John for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. 
So remember, Herod the Great had four sons. This Herod, Herod Antipas, was one of them, along with his half-brother, Herod Philip. And there were two Herod Philips, but this Herod Philip is the one, it's so confusing, I know. This Herod Philip is the one that was married to a woman named Herodias, who was also both Herod Antipas's and Herod Philip's niece, to communicate something of just how messed up this family was. And evidently, both Mark here and even the, the Jewish historian Josephus tells the story, evidently Herod Antipas decided that he desired Herod Philip's wife more than his own wife, and so he sent his own wife away, as it was very easy to do at that time. Many Pharisees argued that you could send your wife away and divorce her for almost any reason, and Herod evidently did that. He sent his own wife away, and he convinced and seduced Herodias into leaving Philip and coming to be his own wife. And so John, being a prophet, verse 18, tells us he was telling Herod that this is not lawful. It is not lawful, he said, for you to have your brother's wife. It is not lawful. Herod had transgressed the the commandments of God and, and, and the authority of God, hadn't he? He had broken the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. He'd broken the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. He'd broken the 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And not only that, he transgressed the instructions we find in Leviticus 18 that tells us about unlawful sexual relations. There Moses tells us that it's unlawful for a man to have sexual relations with his niece and his brother's wife. And yet here we find Herod and his brother's wife Herodias had rejected God's authority and commandments and they had gone their own way. And that's to say nothing of the the perversion of Herodias' daughter dancing for Herod and his guests and of the brutality of Herod's murder of John. You may think, well, that's so strange. We live in such a vastly different world today, don't we? Perhaps names have changed and perhaps certain sins were more acceptable then than they are now. And of course, there are certain sins that are more acceptable now than they were then too. But we live in the same world. People are still people, and we still reject God's authority. And just a few years ago, the, the Ashley Madison scandal went public. There were found 32 million people exposed at that time over 50 countries, across over 50 countries, all having accounts on this website whose tagline was, Life is short, have an affair. And just recently, our, our, our family happily watched the Rose Bowl and its results. And I had to think about and carefully time my departure from the room to get snacks and to use the restroom and whatnot because I didn't want my children to witness some of the base and depraved content of some of those commercials on while I was gone. We live in an increasingly pornified culture that cheapens sex and warps human sexuality into something unrecognizable to God's good design for us. And that's to say nothing about the ways in which we treat life as so cheap, from the unborn to the elderly. And what is it all except a a rejection of God's good and proper authority? Who designed marriage? Who designed human sexuality? Who created human life? Who knows us better than we know ourselves and who thereby knows how we can flourish and thrive in life? God does. And so, he has the rightful authority to show and guide us in how we ought to live. 
And his commandments then are, are not oppressive. They're meant to help us live in freedom and flourishing. Perhaps you've noticed here in our passage how Herod seems to be such a conflicted individual. He's just continually at odds with himself, it seems. He's kind of tossed to and fro, depending on what those around him want from him. On, on the one hand, Herod, uh, Herod feared John. But on the other hand, he arrested John because that's what Herodias wanted. On the one hand, he was perplexed by John. But on the other, he heard John gladly. On the one hand, when it came to, to killing John, he was exceedingly sorrowful because he didn't want to put John to death. But on the other hand, he feared disappointing his, dinners, his dinner guests. And so we had John beheaded. Do you see him? How he, seems, he just seems to be such a conflicted and confused person. And friends, that, that is the result of not living according to God's good authority and design for us. The world will portray the lifestyles of expressive individualism and doing whatever the heck you want and, and your own self-direction and sexual promiscuity and self you know, and independence from God and, and all of it as a life of freedom. But look around you. Look at Herod and then look around you across the landscape of the West today. Is this what it's all leading to? How is this working out for us? Are people free? Are people free? Perhaps you see something of yourself inherit here. Perhaps you continually feel at odds within yourself. Perhaps you're someone who, who feels so conflicted and so divided and so anxious within continually. And, and perhaps you've told yourself, well, I'm just this way because I have so many responsibilities or obligations or whatever. The truth is, it's the result of not living under the glad submission to your maker. You're trying to live according to your own design and guidance. You're trying to make your own way and, and to determine your own purpose and to write your own map of life rather than receiving the way you were designed to live from your maker. And Jesus put it this way later in Mark 6, verse 34. He says, you're trying to live as a sheep without a shepherd. You're not made for radical autonomy. You were made to live beloved, guided, cared for by your shepherd. And that's part of why Jesus has come, to be your shepherd, to rescue you from having to live life aimlessly, so conflicted and confused and so weary with it all. Jesus says to all who are aimless and anxious, conflicted and confused, to all who are weary with it all, he says, come to me, I will be your shepherd. I will guide you and care for you and show you how life works best. All you must do is, is, is hand yourself over to him and say, I'm tired of running my own life. I hand myself over to you. Please run my life for me. And if you do, and only if you do, Will you know the true freedom of living under your rightful shepherd? And Christians, we can learn something from John's bold witness here too, can't we? He didn't shy away from declaring God's universal, absolute authority. He didn't DM Herod and say, Oh, hey, buddy. I heard you married your niece and your brother Philip's wife. I'm not judging. 
can we just get together and talk so I can share some of my personal beliefs on the matter with you? And if you disagree, we can agree to disagree. That's okay. I just need to tell you my thoughts. No, Herod clearly rejected God's authority. And so John, he wasn't rude. He wasn't unkind. But he clearly viewed God's authority as absolute and binding on all of life and all of humanity. God's authority is binding over every square inch of human existence, even what we do in the privacy of our own bedrooms. Friends, so much of the world today will be willing to tolerate us so long as we treat what we believe as a merely personal and private matter. But if we're going to be faithful disciples of Christ, we can't do that because God's authority is not a merely personal or private matter. His authority is absolute spanning over over the whole domain of human existence. God's no tetrarch. He doesn't rule over a fourth of life. He rules over it all. And so we are those who ought to assert God's rightful authority over all. And let me tell you, that'll likely look different for you than it did for John the Baptist, right? You're you're not an old covenant prophet. As important as your your political Facebook posts are, I doubt they're really going to do that much good. I doubt they're ever going to reach the sight of a president or a governor or a mayor or whomever. And so boldly proclaiming our sovereign God might not look like you confronting well-known politicians for their sin. But it might look like you admonishing your children to repent because they stole something from a friend or lied to you. God's authority applies to that situation. It might look like you speaking up and confronting a coworker who speaks in a sexually derogatory or demeaning way about women in the office. God's authority applies to that situation. It might might look like you calling a friend or even a parent or an in-law to repentance because he's mistreating his wife or he's divorcing his wife for a less than legitimate reason. God's authority applies to that situation. These are not merely matters of personal opinion and conviction. They are clear transgressions against God's authority and design, and so they must be viewed and declared as such as we face a world that rejects God's authority. And that's not easy. I grant you, that is not easy. But the Christian life is not easy. Discipleship and mission is not easy. Because lastly, as we live lives of discipleship and mission, we follow the path of our crucified Savior. Look at me lastly at this gruesome scene described in verses 21 to 29. We saw earlier that Herodias wanted Herod to put John to death, but Herod wouldn't. He was afraid to do so. And he even seemed to like John somewhat. But Herodias' opportunity came, we see in verse 21, the phrase uh, translated as opportunity literally re- reads, a, a timely day. A timely day came. She was just waiting for her opportunity to come, and come it did. It was Herod's birthday. He had many guests, powerful men from all around Herod's domain. And, and Herodias' daughter came in and danced for Herod and his guests. Now Mark doesn't say her name, but the historian Josephus identifies this young girl as, as Salome. She's a young girl. In verse 22, calls her girl here. It's the same word used for the young girl, Jairus' daughter, in Mark 5, 42. This is a young girl. She could be as young as 12 years old, possibly even younger. 
And yet the, the, the perversion of Herod in this group of men is just astounding. So Herod, likely so drunk and turned on that he's not thinking straight. He makes a rash vow to Salome. He tells her, verses 22 to 23, Ask for me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And that's just foolish. He can't make that promise. This kingdom is not his to give away. It was given to him by Caesar. He's a vice regent, not a king. It doesn't matter ultimately anyways. This young girl has no interest in domains or kingdoms. She's, she's too young to care about that. So she goes to her mother and she says, what should I ask for? And Herodias horrifically tells her the head of John the Baptist. Salome goes in to Herod. And says, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist. And then she adds this rather sick detail. She wants his head on a platter. And although Herod is conflicted, he, he ultimately doesn't want to go back on his word or disappoint his dinner guests. And so he brutally and gruesomely orders for John's head to be lopped off and brought in on a platter like it was a piece of meat served up to his guests. This is a horrid and gruesome scene. It closes with John's disciples coming and taking his body to lay it in a tomb and Christ's disciples returning to debrief from their mission trip. And I would be remiss here if I didn't point out that Mark is trying to show us something. He's foreshadowing for us what we can expect to happen to Christ later in this gospel. You know, it's no coincidence that the identities of Jesus and John are confused for one another in the first part of our passage, and that John suffers death at the hand of those in power. And in fact, Mark even seems to use similar language at places to speak about John's death and Jesus' death and John's burial and Jesus' later burial. Just as John's head here in verse 28 is, quote, brought to Salome and, and Herodias, so Jesus, Mark 15, 22, will be, quote, brought to Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And there, like John, he will be killed at the hands of sinful and powerful men. He will be crucified there on Mount Golgotha, rejected and despised by men, just like John here. And just as John's disciples come and take his body to lay it in a tomb here in verse 29, so Joseph of Arimathea, the same phrase is used when he comes and takes Jesus' body in Mark 15, 46 and lays it in a tomb. Mark is foreshadowing for us where Jesus' life and ministry are headed in the death of John the Baptist. Just as John was Christ's forerunner in ministry in the beginning, he's also Christ's forerunner in death in the end. Only unlike John's death, Christ's death for us is far more than a lesson. Christ's death is our salvation because as perfect humanity dying a sinner's death, Christ died in our place. He died taking our sin and penalty upon himself as those who have rejected God's authority, as those who have utterly failed to living according to his design, as those who have rebelled against him and each gone our way like lost sheep. The Lord has laid on him, our shepherd, the iniquity of us all so that we can be freely pardoned from sin and rebellion and treason against our sovereign. 
who alone has proper authority over us. Jesus Christ is our pardon. But then Mark's also showing us, as we've already mentioned, in sandwiching the disciples' commissioning and return in this way, Mark is trying to show us something of the nature and cost of living as Christ's disciples and representatives in the world. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer once stated, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And this is tangibly and tragically illustrated here in John. Just as being Christ's forerunner means death, So being Christ's follower means death. Jesus himself will go on to tell us in Mark 8, 31 to 33 about his own death, about his own death and his own resurrection. And on the heels of that, foretelling his own death, he calls his disciples to follow him into death. Mark 8, 34 to 35 says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is the call of discipleship. This is the call of those who would live as representatives of Jesus in the world. It's a call to come and die. To all, it is a call to come and spiritually die. And for some like John, it is a call to come and meet with even physical death at the hands of those who reject Christ and his gospel. And so we see that Christ's cross is not only pardoned for us, it's also a pattern we're called to follow. Perhaps you look at at the death of John and the deaths of those young Iraqi people that that I mentioned in the beginning, and, and, and you think, that just seems so far removed from my life here in Dayton, Ohio, 2022. You're not facing ISIS. You're not facing Herod or Herodias or anyone who wishes you dead. And even if you are facing people who wish you dead, they don't have the power to do anything about it. Perhaps you never will face anything like that. But friends, let me tell you, those young men and John the Baptist and all who have given their lives in service to Christ over the last 2,000 years did not courageously choose martyrdom in a vacuum. No, they laid down their lives in service to Christ long before their time came to die. They laid down their lives in service to Christ when, when they first began to follow him, and in their daily lives, they laid down their lives as a habit, a lifestyle, as a daily posture. Tim Chester, in his great book, Ordinary Hero, he says every small act of service is preparation for martyrdom. Indeed, every small act of service is a kind of martyrdom already, a dying to self. Well, undoubtedly, those who are martyred in service to Christ chose those small martyrdoms in the ordinary course of life. They chose to die a thousand small deaths. They chose to face smaller, everyday martyrdoms throughout their lives as they laid down their lives to serve Christ and his kingdom in the world. And whether or not you or I ever get our heads lopped off, we're called to do the same. The cross of Jesus Christ in addition to being our pardon from sin, is also the pattern which we, after which we model our everyday lives. Well, and what does that look like? What does that look like? What does it look like to, to follow the pattern of the cross in, in your everyday life? Or when you're tired, 
and someone asks you for help, it looks like Philippians 2.17, which says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. When you're considering stepping out of your comfort zone and taking a risk for the sake of the gospel and the mission of Christ, it looks like Ephesians 5, 1-2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. When you're asking, how's this important life decision and this choice going to affect me? Well, following the pattern of the cross looks like Philippians 2, 4 through 8. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what does it mean for the way that we give to Christ's church and mission? It looks like 2 Corinthians 8, 7. See that you excel in this act of grace for which you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. What does it mean when others hate you and revile you and sin against you while following the pattern of the cross. means Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. What does it mean when you face temptation? It means 1 Peter 4.1-2, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. What does it mean when you're faced with confessing Christ and you're afraid? Because by doing so, you might lose reputation or relationships or even safety. It means Luke 14, 26, hating even your own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even your own life, Jesus says, because you are Christ's disciple and you choose to forsake all others, even yourself, if it means knowing and having Christ. That's what it means. That's what it looks like. That's the call to discipleship, picking up your cross and following in the path of your crucified Savior. Suffering thousands of little deaths, thousands of small, everyday martyrdoms. And the good news in Christ's call to discipleship is that it's worth it. He's worth it. Knowing Him, having Him, and all of His goodness and beauty and kindness and sufficiency and salvation is worth it. Having the promise of his crown placed on our heads at the end of the age, it's worth it. Because all those who pick up their crosses now will have Christ and their very own crowns in the age to come. That's why Jesus says in Mark 8, 35, whoever save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Friends, all those who follow Christ in his crucifixion, 
will also follow him into resurrection and eternal life. All who take up discipleship to Christ and his mission in the world will have him as their reward at the end of the age. We bear crosses now, but we will bear crowns then. Even John on his newly restored, glorified head. These are the lessons of a slain prophet for a sent people. And we bear them in mind as we live as Christ's disciples and representatives in the world. Let's pray. Father, seal this word upon our hearts. Help us as we are sent into a world that misunderstands who your son is and what he's come to do. As we're sent into a world that rejects your authority, help us to be sent as people who are following in the path of our crucified Savior, receiving his pardon by faith and with humility, and also following its pattern as we seek to make him known in the world. Help us to make him known. Strengthen us for this task. Feed us with the life of your Son as we come now to the table so that we would be strengthened and not only find our pardon and our pattern in the cross of Christ, but also our power to live according to this pattern. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.